0: Section 2 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1, Introductory, Part 2. But Charles V could not take either of these objects in hand, any more than set about his desired crusade against the Turks, till he had carried to a successful issue his war with France, In which he not unnaturally thought himself entitled to the support of the new Pope. Adrian, on the other hand, though longing for the restoration of peace between the Christian powers, in order that they might in common make war upon the encroaching infidel, would fain have brought about this peace as mediator rather than as the ally of one of the combatants. In the end, just before his death, he had to fall in with the emperor's proposals august fifteen twenty three But during nearly the whole of his short papacy, there had been little real cordiality between the pair, and the reformation of the Church was hardly if at all mentioned in their correspondence. Thus, it was without the aid of his imperial pupil that Pope Adrian the Sixth addressed himself to the task imposed upon him by his lofty conception of his office. At Rome, his election as that of a foreigner had been received with the most open manifestations of ill will. He neither possessed, nor would he have condescended to use, the arts by which disaffection might have been appeased. He seems not even to have been master of the Italian tongue. At first he may have derived some encouragement from the speech by which Cardinal Carvajal welcomed him in the name of the sacred college— the seven recordationes presented to him dwelt on the grievous corruptions in the church, but contained no allusion to the religious movement in Germany of which it was still the fashion at Rome to make light. Even more significant was the elaborate memorial drawn up by Agidius of Viterbo, general of the order of Saint Augustine, and submitted to the Pope by the reforming party among the cardinals. This document appeals to the Pope, in whose election the hand of God is manifest, to restore the Church, beginning with an inquiry into the fallen condition of the papacy itself as the real source of the widespread ecclesiastical corruption. The power of the keys ought to be reduced to the limits of ancient usage and any abuse of it scrupulously avoided. Pluralities and compositions should be wholly abolished, Reservations confined to exceptional cases, and comments kept within due measure. The entire judicial administration of the Church should be revised, the Supreme Court at Rome, Rota, reorganized, the Chamber of Finance, Camera, reformed, and a commission appointed to inquire into the new offices by which Leo X had so largely increased his expenditure and his debts. As for the life and morals of the clergy at large, it would be desirable to carry out the decrees of the Lateran Council. On the other side, while the memorial insisted on the necessity of restricting improper concessions granted in concordates to temporal princes, it demanded the rigorous execution of the Edict of Worms against the new German heresy. The Holy See should hasten to take advantage of the readiness of Bohemia to be reconciled to it, while with a view no doubt to the suppression of the more recent and more dangerous religious revolt, it should use its best endeavors to mediate peace between the empire, France, and England. The entire memorial might have served as a textbook for the actual counter-reformation. Coming from Spain, Adrian VI must have received these demands and recommendations all of which were completely in harmony with both his experiences and his opinions as a challenge to his conscience. The plague was raging at Rome, and he was himself enfeebled by illness, but he resolved to remain in the city. On the very day after his coronation, September 1, 1522, he annulled all steps taken by the sacred college since his election for the filling up of benefices, and soon afterwards. October 11th, he published the Chancery Rules, which he had first put forth in Spain, April 24th, and which revoked all reservations made or expectancies granted in his name. He soon showed his intention to respond to nearly all the demands of the reforming cardinals by declaring against pluralities, renouncing the right of ordering reservations, and seeking to limit the operation and thereby to diminish the issue of indulgences. But the best proof of his resolve to oust Simon Magus from his time-honored seat is to be found in his strenuous declaration against abuses which at Rome had come to be considered institutions. He reduced his household in a spirit of primitive simplicity and adapted his military establishment to the model of Sparta on a peace footing. He tried to prevent his subjects from bearing arms and the cardinals from granting sanctuary, and while he announced his intention of abolishing the multitudinous new offices created by his predecessor, he incurred, by his cold and almost precision reserve, the contemptuous hatred of the Roman artistic and literary world. If Adrian VI actually supposed that his well-meant but crude efforts would be crowned with success, he had reckoned without Rome. The population of the city desired money to be spent in, among, and upon it. The official world of the Curia opposed with deadly determination this sudden deviation of the papacy into the path of administrative reform. Adrian was laughed at as a platonic idealist among the Romulian rabble. He was execrated for appointing Flemings and Germans to some of the most confidential of the offices left in his court. Not a grain of popular sympathy was, from first to last, bestowed upon his endeavors. But the resistance to these, of course, centered in the College of Cardinals, to which, with the exception of one nomination immediately before his death, he made no additions. His policy was indeed here supported by Carafa. Who, like Adrian, had imbibed ideas of ecclesiastical reform in Spain, and by one or two others. But even Cajetano de Vio, who had learnt patience from the results of the Lateran Council, advised deliberation, and Sodarini uttered warnings fraught with the experience of three pontificates. Thus the Pope was left to carry on the struggle nearly alone. Nor is it wonderful that he should have had resort to men of piety and learning, on whose sympathy, he thought himself able to count and among them to his countryman erasmus the foremost man of letters of the age the correspondence between adrian the 6th and erasmus however shows that whatever may have been at this time the great scholar's mental attitude towards the lutheran reformation he had scant sympathy to spare for the counter-movement as conceived by the actual head of the church he declined the pope's invitation to rome taking occasion to express both his annoyance at being charged there with the authorship of the new heresy, and his conviction that no advice of his was called for if that heresy was to be suppressed by persecution. And he was right. Since transparently honest as Pope Adrian was, he could hardly have acted in concert with an ally who invoked the sweet name of liberty. Before the final reply of Erasmus was indicted, the Pope had already entered upon the second part of his scheme of counter-reformation. Luther's patron, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, was admonished to repentance in a papal missive containing an attack upon Luther himself as virulent as it was ill-founded. Then, in December 1523, through his legate Chiaragatti at the Diet of Nuremberg the Pope denounced the Lutheran movement to the estates in the most unmeasured terms and declared his determination to resist it. In the same breath, however, he professed his desire, but for which he would never have taken upon himself the burden of the papacy, to reform the deformed Catholic Church. With true greatness of soul, he caused the condition of that church to be described to the diet as corrupt from the head downwards. The Diet replied in a very cool tone, recurring to the grievances of the German nation against the Roman Curia, and suggesting that they should be remedied before the proposed steps were taken against Luther. In no other way could a modus vivendi be found up to the meeting of a general council, which it was hoped would soon be summoned to some suitable German city. No desire was indicated to break with the Pope— but the sanction of the Diet to the execution of the Edict of Worms was distinctly refused, and even a request on the part of the Pope for the institution of proceedings against certain preachers of heresy in Nuremberg itself were declined. The result must have been a bitter disappointment to Adrian, although in truth his difficulties at Rome left him no time for proceeding effectively against the German Reformation. In the midst of them, he died. September 14th, 1523. At his deathbed, the cardinals to whom he commended the cause of the Church were said to have responded with eager inquiries as to the disposal of his personal property. His great endeavor was doomed to failure, if only because he ignored the most obvious considerations of policy and sought to accomplish his ends forthwith and unassisted, save by the sanctity of his office. Sacred, no doubt, it still was to many minds but hardly to those of all the cardinals, not to speak of the protonotaries, referendaries, solicitors, writers of the archives, collectores plumbi, and other officials at Rome. Adrian expected, with a confidence either childish or sublime, that everything, including the emperor's necessities, would bend to the demands of his own zeal. He brought no other leverage to bear upon the twofold task which he had set himself to accomplish and Christendom might indeed have cried miracle had he lifted the load. Adrian's successor, Clement Seventh, 1523-34, though not indifferent to the efforts which in the course of his reign religious enthusiasm continued to make at Rome, returned to the ordinary papal methods of government and policy. At first, indeed, he displayed some diplomatic activity on behalf of the suppression of heresy in the empire, and put forth a thin decree bearing upon the removal of certain internal abuses in fifteen twenty four his legate Compeggi at Ratisbon published a mandate conceived in the spirit of Adrian's reforms and modelled on their Spanish precedents. It appears to have exercised a salutary effect upon the South German clergy and to have approved itself to the great English Cardinal Wolsey himself a reformer of the moderate type. The time of its publication was opportune, for a reaction against Luther's no compromise seemed to have set in even in Germany, and a great opportunity seemed to offer itself to Erasmus and the Erasmians. But all too soon the sky was darkened by events which constituted an epoch in the history of the papacy. Not so much by his own fault as by that of the policy inherited by him from previous holders of the temporal power— Clement VII had to throw himself into the arms of France and to quarrel with the emperor. Not only did the Edict of Worms now become a dead letter, but soon the imperial army was marching upon Rome. In the Sacco di Roma, 1527, Spanish soldiers shared with German Landsknechte. nor was it to the Protestant world alone that the judgment of heaven seemed to have descended on the city of the popes. Charles V, who now held Pope Clement as a prisoner in his power, might perhaps have solved the twofold question of the reformation of the Church and of the suppression of the religious revolt by simply abolishing the temporal power. Or he might have refused to restore it unless after a thorough reform of the Roman Curia and of the whole system of papal administration, such as was actually demanded by his Spaniards. At the very least, he might have carried out the plan which he had cherished during the last three years of assembling a general council, whose reformatory decrees no papal intrigues could have hindered, manipulated, or stultified. Charles V contented himself with trusting to the weakness of the restored pope. The demand for a council was evaded at Bologna, November 1529, where about the very time when Protestantism was seeking to establish itself on definite dogmatic bases, the papacy returned to political maneuvers. Successfully resisting the emperor's reiterated demands for a council, Clement called in the aid of the infidel and heterodox world to redress the balance of the faithful. Thus he contrived to maintain his own political influence and to assure the future of the House of Medici. He was warned by the Venetian Cotarini that the welfare of the Church for which it was the Pope's duty to labour did not rest on her temporal power. The personally respectable but commonplace character of Clement the Seventh enabled him to pass unchanged through an experience more awful than had befallen any of his predecessors. but just as the Rome of the Renaissance was never again to rise from her ruins, so the Church of which Rome remained the center, was already before his death, September 1534, awake to the fact that in the epoch now at hand, she could no longer remain standing in the old ways. End of Section 2